Joy to the world, the Lord is come. We live our lives craving for joy. We ask now, Lord, that we would feel your joy present in this room, in this very hour, that you would meet us here at our point of need and show us just how wonderful you are. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm Mike, one of the pastors here, and I'll be speaking from uh, one of the Ten Commandments and then leading us in the Lord's Supper a little bit later. Back in the day when you could pay for the bus actually using some real money, I had the experience more than once of getting on a bus in Kingston, reaching in my pocket for some change, and handing a pound coin to the bus driver, only to be greeted by the words, this is fake. It was an embarrassing moment. You felt that the entire bus was looking at you as you received back the fake coin sheepishly and noticed that it was actually a little bit different to the other ones in your pocket. Now listen, friends, I hadn't made the fakes myself. So I want to say that. Someone had slipped them to me in my change. Somehow they'd ended up with me. And it turns out that at its peak, the old round pound coin, one in 30, were false. One in 30, about 3%. Now, thanks to the efforts of the Royal Mint, we now have pound coins that are much harder to counterfeit, so we don't have many fake coins. But what about fake words? Fake words. How many words are said to us in the course of our daily lives that are untrustworthy, manipulative, deceptive, or just plain false? You young people here, I always look over there when I talk to the young people, but actually the hands indicate they may be all over the room. You know how horrible it feels when someone you thought was your friend turns out to have lied to you. It's so horrible. You don't know who you can trust. Some of us here have felt the the, the sorrow of a broken heart that came from discovering the person you were in love with has been lying to you for a while. False words. In the workplace, promises to meet a deadline so easily broken, claims of work and achievements and things that have been done that were actually very overinflated, assurances of outcomes that never materialized, promises of things that we can do which we can't actually do. And then there are the honeyed words of flattery, so sweet and feel so delightful, but underneath you get this sense it's not really true. They don't really mean it. I'm being taken in. Promises from insurance companies that somehow never seem to materialize when you actually need to claim on the insurance. Have you noticed that? Statements from public figures about matters that affect the national life, which everybody knows, contain half-truths. And then there's fake news. We could go on and on, couldn't we? Now, on Sunday mornings this term, we're looking at the Ten Commandments, and we're finding that these are much more than just a set of instructions. They are actually a key to life, a key to living free, a key to the good life. Through Moses, God, the living God, is giving his people a blueprint of what it means to be fully human. And this is what it means to choose life, to live in line with these ten principles. And if they had kept them, the people of God in the Old Testament would have been a light to the whole world. So you see how important these commandments were? They are not just the ten suggestions. 
This isn't friendly advice from a Father Christmas character. This is God. Almighty God saying, live like this. You must live like this. And if you live like this, you will be a light to the world and I will save the world through you. And their mantle has now passed as the people of God to the church of Jesus Christ today, the global church of Jesus. And so Christians are called to live good and attractive lives so that other people see them and are rescued and come to love God themselves. That's how important it is. So what about the ninth commandment? Here it is, again, very short. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. I mean, it might seem a little bit of an anticlimax. Is it really that serious? Does it belong up there with the big boys? Murder, adultery, and theft? We must understand what this is talking about, you know. And in fact, we must not only understand, but feel how important it is. Blaise Pascal was a French mathematician and philosopher in the 17th century. He wrote about uh, how the Christian faith should be presented. These words are quite telling. He said, men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid it may be true. The cure for this is, first of all, to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, make it attractive. Make good people wish it were true and then show them that it is. I want to try and do that today here. I want to, to show you that it, is a, it would be a really good thing if our world was true and then show you how it can be. I've got three points. Firstly, God hates lying and so do we. Secondly, truth is beautiful. And thirdly, Jesus is the truth we need. God hates lying and so do we. Truth is beautiful and Jesus is the truth we need. Firstly, God hates lying. What is this commandment actually prohibiting? The specific language of the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness, is actually the language of the law court. It's legal. It's talking about witnesses who are testifying in a court of law. So the first thing that's in view here is testimony in court. Now, reliable witnesses who tell the truth are important in any legal system but they were even more important in the ancient world. If you think about it, it was a world with no CCTV, no dusting for fingerprints, no DNA testing, no detectives. Justice depended on witnesses. So the TV show CSI Israel would have been very boring. It would have just been all about the witnesses. The, the justice system of the entire nation depended on the honesty of the people. So God addresses each individual in the nation with this commandment. You should never bear false witness. Because everyone's a potential witness in court. The witnesses are the key factor in the process. False evidence undermines a case, but it does more than that. If everybody's lying, it undermines our confidence in the entire system. And that then jeopardizes the very stability of society. And some of you know that because you've come from countries where that has happened. So important. Now, in the Old Testament times, various measures were taken to discourage false testimony. Uh, there was a minimum of two witnesses 
required for any testimony to be accepted as valid. So it could never be my word against his. There always had to be a minimum of two witnesses. And if those witnesses were found to be false, they were punished. And they were punished with the punishment they tried to inflict on another person. So, listen to this. If they testified against someone and and it was the death penalty, the witnesses would face the death penalty. So you can imagine that tended to reduce frivolous lawsuits. Now, at the basic level, the commandment insists on absolute integrity when we're giving testimony. But we all know by now that it means much more than that. We've seen how these commandments operate over the last couple of months. There is a principle at work here which is known as the paradigmatic principle. I'm sorry to use such a long word. It's a paradigm, which is a a pattern. And so in English law, we have law that's determined by cases, thousands and thousands and thousands of cases, and all those big leather-bound books in the lawyer's office. In this world, law is very simple, and it gives you a paradigm, a principle, which you have to work out the maths. You have to do the maths. It's like a click down on a website. You click it and it drops down. Ah, yeah, this is what it means. We have to think through the implications. It expects us to do some reflection. You see, what's going on here is God is not just interested in honesty in the courtroom, is he? He cares about honesty in the office. He cares about honesty in the staff room and at the shop. He cares about honesty at the school gate and in your living room and in your bedroom. He's not just interested in honest words, but honest actions. This word is calling for the highest standards of integrity in the whole of our lives. But that gives us a problem because we are all liars. I'm glad one person found that funny. We're all liars. Now, you might think, hold hold on a minute, it's a bit rude. In case you think I'm just trying to be provocative, Psalm 116, verse 11, says, All men are liars. All men are liars. And in case the ladies here are feeling a bit smug and thinking, Yeah, I always said that. (laughs) Let me point out, as you know, that this is one of those places where men means humankind. That means all of us are liars. We all break this commandment. Is it true? Are we really all liars? Old Testament expert and great teacher of mine, Gordon Hugenberger. He had to become an Old Testament expert with a name like that. Gordon Hugenberger, Professor Hugenberger, cited an article in an American scientific journal, and the article was called Natural Born Liars. And what the researchers did was this. They secretly videotaped University students who were chatting to a stranger. They were filming them secretly. And later on, they told the students what had happened. And they invited them, if they wanted to, to to join in the study and take part. And the students then went and watched the video. And the researchers said, point out every time you said something that was untrue in those 10 minutes. Do you think they found anything? The average was nearly three untruths per 10 minutes. So you talk to a stranger for 10 minutes, you've already told them three lies or things that weren't truthful. They found, the study found that women and men, wait for it, lie at exactly the same frequency. A lot. 
But there was a difference. Women tended to lie to make the stranger feel better about themselves. Oh, you're from the Sahara Desert. How lovely. It must be wonderful with all that sand. <laughs> Men didn't tend to lie to make the stranger feel better about themselves. Men tended to lie to make themselves look bigger. <laughs> Exaggerating how important they were, what they were working on, making themselves look great. Now look, I know that's funny, but how do we bear false witness, friends? You know, there are many ways, but I want to just ponder a few things that crop up in our daily lives. And the first one is actually through social convention. Because our culture allows us to tell untruths in certain times and, and says that that's respectable. How do you answer the question, does my bum look big in this? Do you know what, friends? If you don't want the answer, don't ask it. You probably knew already. Or making statements like this. Why, Geraldine, you haven't aged a day. She has. <laughs> Some years ago, uh, the, the uh, Anglo-Dutch oil company, Shell, realized that there were problems in communication between the Dutch executives and the British and English, I think particularly English executives. So they actually developed a guide called What the British Mean. And this was to help the Dutch colleagues, because the Dutch tend to be quite plain-speaking. And those of you South Africans from Dutch heritage, you also are plain-speaking. And you realize that the English are not. So here's some examples. An English person says, that's not bad. The other person hears them saying, it's quite good. What they mean is, it's poor. <laughs> the English person says in a meeting, well, that's a very brave proposal. The other person thinks they mean, I'm brave. What it actually means is, you are insane. <laughs> if an English person says, that's quite good, the other person thinks they mean, it's quite good. But what they actually mean is, it's a bit disappointing. <laughs> and then the final one is, uh, I was a bit disappointed that... The other person thinks they mean it doesn't really matter, but in fact what they mean is, I'm really annoyed about it. Now look, this uh, may help international church members uh, as they make their way through this strange land, uh, but it's an example of how social convention actually allows us to say things that aren't true and not even think twice about it. I, had, I studied in America, and, and the biggest people group who were on the course, apart from Americans, were Koreans, and I became very close friends with the oldest Korean student on the campus, and he therefore had the most authority in that community, and he told me that Koreans basically uh, cannot say no if you ask them for a favor, culturally. Uh, if you ask them to give you a lift to the airport, they have to say yes. So any Koreans in this church, I mean, you know, we're now all going to ask you. But the point was that they had to make up socially acceptable ways of saying yes, but making it clear that they were really saying no. <laughs> and of course, other people had no clue about that. Social convention. What about exaggeration? Do you exaggerate? All the time. What about when complaining about customer service? Do you exaggerate the problem? What about making claims on your insurance? What about calling in sick? You have a mild cold. 
but you made it sound like bubonic plague. What about work? Do you lie about your abilities or on your CV? I was once involved in executive recruitment for a few years, and my company eventually retained the services of a specialist company that specialized in checking every single claim on a person's CV. And it led to some red faces. Some people had actually invented degree qualifications that they didn't have, but also embellished job descriptions, gilded their job to title, and created fantasy achievements, or things that were real, but they hadn't actually achieved them. Then there's misrepresentation. That picture on Facebook, come on, do you really look like that? Have you ever noticed how many people look drop-dead gorgeous on Facebook? And then you meet them. <laughs> and you feel like making a call to trading standards. <laughs> Slander. This is when we spread negative information, stories, or rumors about other people. We are bearing false witness against them. Now, I'm not standing here six feet above contradiction when I preach. My wife caught me the other week about to pass on a story, a negative story, that I had heard third-hand about somebody I've never actually met. That's slander. And I was rightly rebuked. Then there's gossip. Proverbs in the Bible describes gossip as a delicious morsel. Somehow, by passing on tidbits of news about other people, we feel good. Why? It's because it gives us power. We get a thrill from the feeling of power that gossip gives us. Gossip makes us look important. We're in the know. We're the insider. Gossip makes us look good because we're passing on details about someone else's failure. And of course, we would never behave like that. But we would hate it if someone did the same to us. And you know what? They are. Then there's more subtly ingratiation. We use criticism of other people to ingratiate ourselves to those we've just met. I learned this in my previous church up north. We were there for 12 years. And sometimes people would visit the church and they would say, oh, this church is great. And of course, as the pastor, you feel really pleased about that. And then they would say, it's so much better than our last church. And you'd think, oh, I don't know if you should say that. But what they were doing was do, using it to build rapport, to ingratiate themselves. But I learned not to be fooled. Those same critical eyes will be trained on this church and all its failings before long. It's false. A flattery is closely related. We flatter when we lavish praise and compliments on somebody, but we're actually insincere. We're only doing it to further our own interests. Here's what God thinks about it. Proverbs 26, 28. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Be very wary of people who flatter you. They work ruin. And then there's false witness against Jesus. How do we do that? What does that mean? This is what Jesus said in Matthew 10. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, 
I will disown him before my Father who is in heaven. Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. Now, of course, Jesus is the Prince of Peace and Christmas is all about how he's come to bring peace on earth. But in another way, Jesus' coming brings conflict. It's unavoidable. We can't live at peace with all men if all men don't want to live at peace with us. And this is part of basic Christian discipleship. Friends, if you're a Christian here today, do your colleagues know? Do your neighbors know? Does your whole family know, your friends, that you are a follower of Jesus Christ and that that entails demands upon you? Do they know that it's central to your life? Now, Christians must never manipulate conversations and try and turn things to religious topics in an awkward way. That's embarrassing. But are you transparent about being a follower of Jesus? Or are you covering it up out of fear or a desire to please people? Don't uh, disown him before men and women. So this week, if somebody asks you to tell them what you did at the weekend, tell them about Sunday morning. Tell them about, you don't have to be all heavy about it. You could just say, we were thinking about how truth is beautiful and how that works for everyone. Just say that one sentence and people have to agree with it. Don't disown him. And then there's omission and evasion. You know that you ought to speak up about something, but it's just too awkward and you won't. So you let people continue with the impression that you're happy about something or you agree with them because in fact you don't. You want to look agreeable, but in fact you don't agree, so it's false. Some of us are prone to people-pleasing. We're very susceptible to this. We develop this comedian-like ability to fit in anywhere because we just want to be liked. But in the process, we've lost some integrity. And that's what this all boils down to, is integrity. A beautiful word. It means having honesty and strong moral fiber. It means, also means being whole, being undivided. The structural integrity of this building means that the building is whole and undivided. That part of the room isn't just going to suddenly cave in with the wall come down. It's whole. It has integrity. And so we lack integrity when we are a different person on the inside than we are on the outside. Now, you probably look pretty good when you're at church. You probably look pretty good when you're out of the house. But what would your family think? What are you really like? Are you a different person inside and out? Do you pretend to be something you're not? You put on a mask to get people to like you. It means you're no longer whole. You're divided. The outside is different from the inside. It's false testimony. And the worst thing about all this is that God hates it. God hates lying. Proverbs 6, there are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. A false witness who pours out lies. And a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So God really hates lies as much as those other things. And so do we, don't we? So do we. Lying always hurts someone. 
All people are made in the image of God, according to the Bible. And God is utterly truthful. He's truthful, faithful, reliable. So we were made for truth, to be like him. That's why lies hurt so much. They go against the fiber of who we are. So when we bear false witness, or in any of the ways that we've mentioned, we actually diminish other people. We're trying to control them. We're trying to manipulate them. We're trying to take advantage of them, to use them, to deceive them. When you discover someone has been lying to you, how do you feel about it? You probably feel dirty, betrayed. Quite possibly, you might feel violated. Because lies are utterly destructive to relationships. This was the big thing we always emphasized with our kids when they were growing up. Listen, I know you've done something wrong. I know you've done something. You've got to tell me about it now. And the thing is, tell me the truth now because a lie would be worse than whatever else you did. Because if you keep lying to me, I, don't, I can't trust you anymore. And that destroys our relationship. So we would even give the kids an amnesty. Just tell me the truth. I won't punish you, but you must tell me the truth now. And that way you build trust between you. Lying harms. It's a, a, a sin against our humanity. But the opposite of this is so beautiful. It's so glorious. Truth is beautiful. Remember, every commandment has an, that has a negative also has a wonderful positive, the flip side, the other side of the coin. And the flip side of not bearing false witness is live a life of absolute integrity. It's so beautiful. It shines out. Everyone sees it and loves it. Imagine a world where people only use the power of their tongue to build others up, to nurture them, to support them, to encourage them, to help them, to refine them. Imagine a world where people say what they mean and mean what they say. A world where when they do it, they speak with the maximum amount of kindness and gentleness and affection and care. A world where gossip and slander and malicious rumors have no place and we won't allow them in our ears. No, thank you. I don't want to hear that. A world of honesty and faithfulness. A world where speech never is injurious. A world where speech nurtures and builds up. A world without intrigue and deception and lies. That would be a world of love. And that is how the Bible describes heaven. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, in a vision of heaven, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Lies will end in a burning lake and never come out. Truth is so lovely. And friends, if you are truthful in the workplace, even if your bosses hate Christianity, they will love you. I used to work in a publishing firm in Worcester Park, just 10 minutes up the road, and uh, I uh, mentioned that a friend of mine was looking for a job, and he came and worked for me, Christian friend. And then uh, we recommended another friend, who's our chair of elders now, John Atkirst, he came and he worked in sales. There were three of us in that office. That office was anti-Christian. 
But at the end of the year, the boss came and said, you got any other Christians who can come and work for us? <laughs> Truth is beautiful. And the classic New Testament text on this is very brief. It's found in Ephesians 4. Uh, Alice read for it for us earlier. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Speaking the truth in love. There's a wonderful balance there. We've always got to get this right. Firstly, speak the truth. Of course it means refraining from all kinds of deception, but it's more than that. It's being ready sometimes to have a hard conversation with a person not muffling the truth. This is not stroking people, but speaking the truth. And an observation about churches, and I think it's true of our church too, we're very nice. We, we are really very nice, and we smile a lot, and we say lovely things, and that's good. But we're not very good at direct conversations. We're not good at hard conversations. Are you ready to challenge someone, to uh, correct them, Maybe to rebuke them. If not, you may not be speaking the truth. I remember some years ago, a couple who had to be confronted with something, this is in a previous place, said, if this was what you thought, why didn't anyone say anything before now? That was painful. And they were right. Speak the truth. But notice the balance. It's always in love. You see, there are some people who have no problem speaking the truth, they just charge around speaking the truth all the time. You see them coming, you're duck. I don't want to know what it is today. Because they don't really care what you think or feel. They are going to tell you the truth, whether you like it or not. And their truth may crush people rather than bring freedom. Their speech is at risk of becoming bullying. And we all need to be aware of how loud our voice is. And I don't just mean volume. When you speak to another person, your voice has a certain weight in their life and you need to think about that because we're, most of us are not aware of it. So if you're older than someone or you're in a, some kind of authority position um, or you, you um, are the parent talking to a younger person or you're just someone who's more experienced, you have weight. Your words have weight with them. You need to weigh what you're saying or, or you could unintentionally bully them or, or just be overwhelming. We need to be really careful when we're speaking in love. And the New Testament vision of the Christian church is that it's a place of truth and a place of love. That makes it safe. Because we're always telling the truth, but we're always loving. You lose one of those and the balance goes. So the, the church should be the safest place on earth. And also it's a gymnasium where we are trained in godliness. I've recently started going to the gym. I've been twice. <laughs> and I'll tell you this, sometimes it hurts afterwards. You see, if we keep this commandment, if we abstain from all deception and lying and slander and flattery and gossip and spin and half-truths, if we, if we refuse to hurt anyone, injure anyone with our speech, if we keep this command and if we live the beautiful life, the life of integrity and honesty, and speaking in love and using our words in kind and fair and generous ways, then we will be a light to the nations and salvation will come to the ends of the earth. That's what's at stake in the ninth commandment and in all the others. It's not just good advice. It's not optional. Don't shrug it off. Christian friend, the salvation of lost men and women is in view. Your speech 
is a witness. Your life is a witness. People can see it. It's on display. Don't be a false witness. Be true. This is what we long for King's Church, to be a community of truth. We want this church to glorify God by making disciples who are a community for gospel transformation. We want to invite all people into an ever-growing relationship with Jesus, the King. And that's what we're doing this Christmas. So when we come in and we, we, we show our church's life on display, we want people to see that we're true and faithful and that we have that beauty, that light, in the midst of a world of lying tongues that you and I will stand out because everyone knows that truth is beautiful. So as I close, how are we going to grow in this? I think we grow by discovering more deeply that Jesus is the truth that we need. I don't want to leave you here today with the impression that all you need to do is just try harder. Now, we do need to make every effort to grow in godliness. We do need to put sin to death, take it off, and take off the old self and put on the new. We need to do all those things. But the engine driving that must not be self-justification or guilt and shame. The engine driving change is actually the gospel itself, the message of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and did all of that for us and our salvation. So when we're going to grow in our truthfulness, we need to grow in our love for Jesus. These things go hand in hand. I'm not trying to urge you today to try really, really, really hard and hit yourself every time you say something wrong. I'm trying to urge you today to look at Christ and see how wonderful he is and love him more. Why do we lie? I can think of at least three reasons. Pride, protection, promotion. I sometimes lie because I'm proud and I don't want to be seen that I'm really not that great. So my untruths are making me look better. I sometimes tell truths because I want to duck an awkward conversation or uh, acknowledge a failure. I'm protecting myself. I sometimes say things. They're not even lies. They're just ways of making myself look a bit better than I really are. It's promotion. And if you're anything like me, you struggle with pride, self-protection, and self-promotion too. And so we think that by manipulating our tongues and our words, we can get the life of greatness that we all crave, that lying will keep us free. But it does the exact opposite. How can we live a life of integrity and wholesome speech? By living the gospel. Because Jesus Christ deals with all three of those problems. Pride, he humbles us to the dust. You're more wretched and sinful than you ever imagined. And so the first thing we do when we hear the gospel is we're all down on the same place, the great leveler. Corrupted by sin, there is no health in us. He reduces our pride and then he covers us with his love and his righteousness. And he welcomes us in and he says, you're now my son, my daughter. He says to his heavenly father, Father, you have loved them just as you have loved me. So you're more loved and welcomed and accepted and secure than you ever dreamed was possible because of Jesus. He humbles us, he covers us, and he makes us secure. So we're protected. 
We don't need to live our life protecting ourselves and our reputation and what other people think of us. If you are loved and accepted in the eyes of the most important person in the universe, why do you care what someone else thinks about you? You don't need to promote yourself. You've already got all things in him. All things are ours. Why would you die to be someone, to be recognized, to be liked, when Jesus Christ himself has died to love you with everlasting love? What more could we need? Let's keep the ninth commandment. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge and confess before you today that our tongues have borne false witness and so have our lives. We ask for your forgiveness, your grace and mercy. And we thank you that now as we come to your table, you are waiting to receive us with open arms and the pardon has already been secured. Amen.